Hello and welcome to this webinar on the UKQP and the best practice for gaining eligibility. My name is Pete Goff and uh, I've been in the industry for 45 years in uh, next month, in fact. Uh, I've started out as an analytical chemist and spent over 30 years with Eli Lilly. Uh, I've been a QP since 1985 and I've also been a QP assessor and was chairman of the Royal Society of Chemistry QP Assessor Panels. And since uh, the last 14 years, I've been with NSF and I've been one of their tutors teaching uh, trainee QPs um, and coaching them to become QPs and gain eligibility. So what am I going to cover on this webinar? I'm going to start off by looking at the legal requirements in EU law and then we'll drill down and look at the UK uh, QP assessment process, looking at the guidance that's published, the responsibilities of the applicants and the sponsors, look at the assessor panel, what they're like, their role and responsibilities. Towards the end, I'll uh, make a few suggestions of things not to do, as well as uh, say things to do during the rest of it, and then I'll summarize and close. So, if we move straight on, the process has remained unchanged since it was first defined in EU law in 1975. It was originally in Directive 75319. That is now uh, wrapped up in 2001-83 EC for human products. So it came in in 1975 for human products. It was then extended to veterinary products in 1981, but the requirements were identical. It was extended to uh, cover investigational medicinal products in 2002, and again, it's like, well, Directive 2001-20, it actually didn't become effective until 2004. But again, the requirements are exactly the same. So um, it doesn't matter, I've actually given the reference here for the Human Medicines Directive, but it's exactly the same for um, veterinary products and investigational products. Uh, and that is that the QP shall have a degree or equivalent and again, there's some flexibility there in either one of biology, microbiology, chemistry, pharmacy, pharmaceutical technology, medicine or veterinary medicine, although I know very few people who are qualified as uh, doctors or vets um, to act as QPs. It's much more the first four that usually people um, have when they enter into the process of becoming a QP. As well as having that degree, there is a long list of things that the degree course should include. And this is important because um, the UK looked at this list when it was introduced and said, no UK undergraduate degree contains all of those things. I think the rumour has it it was based on the French pharmacy degree, but uh, that may or may not be true, but it is quite a long list. And incidentally, this, is, this list is the only thing that is different in the new Veterinary Medicines Regulation 2019-6, which become effective in January 2022, uh, has everything exactly the same as the original without this list, that's the only thing that's different. So, as well as the academic qualifications and what that should contain, the QP must also have at least two years' experience in the undertakings authorised to manufacture medicinal products. Essentially, that means the, the site must hold an EU manufacturing import authorisation. 
and you should be involved in the activities of qualitative analysis of products, quantitative analysis of APIs, and testing and checking of the quality of medicines. Now, because that was written back in 1975, it is very QC-focused, but today, certainly in the UK, it's accepted that a quality role, and that could be QA as well as QC, is what is expected. Obviously, if you've also got experience of manufacture, that's a bonus, but actually the law requires you to have the experience in a quality role. That experience can be reduced by one year if the degree course lasts more than five years, but most people, by the time they were thinking about becoming a QP, will have at least two years' experience, and indeed many have very many more years' experience. Now, that's what the law says, what the European directives or regulations say, Unfortunately, there are 28 um, different interpretations, or sometimes more. So exactly how you become a QP in each EU member state is something that's down to each member state. For the vast majority, you apply directly to the competent authority. But several countries, France being the most notable, um, only permit pharmacists, in spite of the fact that the law says you can be a biologist, microbiologist, or chemist, unless you're a pharmacist, they won't accept you. But that's not the case in the, in the UK. The UK follows uh, the law to the letter and has developed its own process. As I say, when that list, uh, that requirement first came out, the UK decided that no one uh, undergraduate degree in the UK covered all of the subjects and therefore any candidate for that role was going to have to have undertaken a period of postgraduate study to fill the gaps uh, in their in their study, probably the pharmacy degree would get closest, but even that wouldn't have everything. And the UK decided they, the UK regulatory authority at that time would have been the Medicines Control Agency, the MCA, the forerunner of the MHRA, was they didn't want to do that. Um, they didn't want to do the assessment themselves, and they subcontracted it out to the professional bodies, the three professional bodies for biology, chemistry, and pharmacy. And so they devised a process, and that process includes an oral exam. So the role of the professional bodies is to assess the candidate's eligibility to be a QP. The candidate would then still have to apply to the competent authority to be named on the manufacturing authorization as a competent authority. So the competent authority still has a role, but it's after the role of the professional body. So the professional bodies determine your eligibility and then the competent authority decide whether you're suitable for each license. As I say, it's subcontracted to the, the Chemistry Society, the Royal Society of Chemistry, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain or the Royal Society of Biology. And they act together now and have done for over 30 years and I generally refer to them as the joint professional bodies. And, as I say, they've been working together for over 30 years and have a, a well-developed process. <clears throat> so, as part of that process, there's a lot of guidance now available from the professional bodies. Um, there's a study guide, and I'll come on to that in a minute. There's guidance notes for applicants and sponsors. There's a form for the applicant, form for the sponsor. There's a code of practice for QPs. And there's also a question and answer document. And all of those are available from the, each of the websites of the three professional bodies. So the first thing they developed was the study guide, which is essentially a curriculum for becoming a QP, designed to address 
all of those things listed in the in the law. That study guide consists of three foundation knowledge elements, as they're called. That is the role uh, of the QP, pharmaceutical law and administration, and pharmaceutical quality systems. So the clue is in the name. They are the foundation elements, and everything else is built upon those. And then there are additional knowledge elements that are listed. Math and stats, medicinal chemistry, pharmaceutical formulation and processing, microbiology, analysis and testing, packaging, APIs and IMPs. So they are the additional knowledge elements. <clears throat> so, how do you become a QP in the UK? Well, the first thing you've got to do is gain membership of the appropriate professional body. So, depending on what your undergraduate degree is, you need to apply to the most appropriate one. Now, if you do want to become a QP, I would suggest that's the place you start, because it can take you anywhere from three to six months, even if your application is relatively straightforward. If you've got um, a degree that's a bit of a, uh, out on left field, something like forensic science or something like that, that probably contains a bit of chemistry, a bit of biology, or you've got a biochemistry degree, I mean, you might actually be able to become a member of both, but you need to decide which society you want to apply for, and if it is a complicated situation, then you need to have that discussion with the society. Most of the societies of um, chemistry and biology say, as long as your undergraduate degree was 50% or more in their subject, then you are eligible for membership. The next thing you've got to do is go back to that study guide and have a look and do a gap analysis of what knowledge and experience do you have at this point in time and where are the gaps, because clearly they're going to have to be closed. Now, actually, coming back to the study guide, that study guide, whilst it is specifically for people who want to become QPs in the UK, it also acts as an excellent curriculum for anybody in Europe wanting to become a QP. And many other countries now recognise that. And if you go through and complete that, and with us gain a master's degree at the end of that process, then um, that is accepted as qualifying you to be a QP in other countries, the Netherlands, a lot of the Scandinavian countries, um, a lot of the Eastern European countries, all accept uh, that if you've completed the UK study guide and passed the, the necessary exams, then that does qualify you to become a QP in their member state. But that's entirely a decision for each member state authority. So you, you've got to start by looking at your gaps, and then you're going to have to work to close them. The professional bodies also provide guidance notes for applicants and sponsors. And once you've joined your professional body, the next most important thing for you to do is to gain a sponsor. Now, that sponsor is usually somebody you work with on a daily basis, often your boss. Um, you know, it might be the QA manager or QA director. And that person should themselves be a QP. If you work in a very small organisation, and that's difficult, maybe you only have a contract QP who maybe only comes in I don't know, two or three times a month maybe, you would perhaps have two sponsors. One would be your immediate supervisor and the other one would be the QP who would need to endorse everything your immediate supervisor says. Normally though, um, you can find a QP because every organisation has to have at least, um, pharmaceutical manufacturing authorisation holder has to have at least one and in practice usually two or more QPs available to them. So hopefully you work with one and they're prepared to sponsor you. It helps 
if they've been through the process themselves, um, and most these days will have been, because as well as signing a form at the end, their main role is to act as a mentor to you over your uh, period of trying to become a QP. They'll be working with you and coaching you, hopefully on a day-by-day basis, and helping you close those experience gaps in particular. Ultimately, they will sign your application and sponsor form, but it is that mentoring role that is the most important, and having a good sponsor is one of the key things to prepare you for QP eligibility. The sponsor should also have a role in selecting candidates to become QPs within an organisation. If there's competition, then it's up to somebody in in management role in your organisation to say, yes, that person would make a QP. And in order to make that decision, they've got to understand not only your technical knowledge, but your current attributes and your potential for improvement. QP role is one where you need to sign up for lifelong learning. And so it's hard work, um, studying and becoming a QP. And again, it's got to be somebody who's prepared to put in the effort and prepare to uh, apply themselves to that process. So the sponsor will be looking at people in the organisation and saying, do they have what it takes to become a QP? Because as an industry, we do need a constant feed of new people coming through to become QPs. As the older ones, like myself, retire, then you need a feed of younger people at the other end of uh, their careers to come in and, and fill the gaps. So the sponsor needs to look at that person. Do they have development potential? Can they make decisions? Ultimately, that's what the role of the QP is, to make a decision. Can I certify this batch as fit for release or not? They've got to be able to work on their own and be a self-starter. Have a certain level of maturity. And I don't mean by age, I mean uh, an attitude of mind there. Obviously, they're going to be, uh, have previous experience and the fewer gaps they've got, the easier they're going to find it. They do need to have the right technical skills and the right degree. And that's where membership of the professional body comes in in checking that you've got the right degree. Most importantly, they've got to have the right communication and interpersonal skills because it's a role where you're going to have to interact with people at all levels in your organisation, from people at board level right down to operators and analysts on the shop floor or on the lab bench. So you do need the right level of interpersonal skills. And obviously, an awareness of what the QP role is and what you're going to be signing yourself up for. So the Joint Professional Bodies Assessment process is you have to fill out an application form. And it's a bit of a beast. It's a big form. It's got something on each of those sections, the three foundation elements and all of the uh, additional knowledge elements. And you have to detail your knowledge and experience in each uh, section. So filling out that form is definitely um, a task, a job of work. And again, I would suggest that you start right at the beginning. In fact, you start to fill out that form as part of your gap assessment because by comparing, by trying to write something in each of those sections, the study guide says what you've got to know in each of those sections. So I recommend you cut and paste the study guide into the relevant section and see what you can write against each one of the elements required. And that will be a a way of identifying what gaps. If you can't write something about it, then clearly it's obviously a gap. And you can build up that form as you go through your your preparation to become a QP. Ultimately, once you think you've finished that form, um, then you can send it to your professional body. They will send it to two of their assessors who will look at it and decide whether on paper 
you meet the expectations, you meet the requirements. If their view is on paper, you do, they will invite you for an oral interview, the viva, and I'll say more about that in a minute. And there are only two possible outcomes from that. Either you pass or you fail. So, what have you got to do as a candidate? Well, it's simple. In pre-practice, you should be able to demonstrate the foundation knowledge, but also, and this is the reason for the viva, the ability to apply the knowledge of pharmaceutical quality system principles and understanding of the additional knowledge elements. And so that's where the viva comes in. It is, can you apply the knowledge? Yes, you might have it, but if you can't apply it, then you're not going to be. A QP is not an academic role. It's very much a practical role. So you've got to demonstrate your knowledge by reference to the products and processes for which you claim your qualifying experience. Remember, you need at least two years' experience on a, a manufacturing authorization holder, named on a holder, uh, working at a site holding a manufacturing authorization, and you have to actually put the license numbers on your application form. Associated with those license numbers will be the dosage forms that are within the scope of that license, and again, so that's the products and processes that you're expected to know, but you are expected to extend, be able to have sufficient knowledge to extend it to other dosage forms. So, you've got gaps. Almost everybody at the start of this process will have some gaps. How are you going to require, chain, close those gaps? For the knowledge gaps, clearly some of it will be provided by your previous academic study, so you might just go back and have to do a bit of revision. But um, you may have got some training in industry, again, but you will still undoubtedly have some knowledge gaps, and you can close those by either further reading or private study, or via a structured training program. And the advantage of um, a structured training program is you will meet other people in the same boat. So you will meet, uh, if you come on one of our courses, you'll meet about 40 other people who are also um, wanting to become QPs, have their own knowledge and experience, and you will learn a lot from them. And again, you can arrange to swap experience visits. So because getting that practical guidance will also come from your sponsor. You will need to look at and decide how you're going to pass them. One of the odd things about preparing to be a QP is not only have you got to do it in the real world, you've also got to be able to articulate it because you're going to have to pass that Viva exam and they will throw scenario type questions at you. So that's a little bit weird. As I say, my advice is start to complete an application form on day one, the day you decide you want to become a QP and build it up as you go. Because if you wait to the end of, say, a two-year study process, you'll never remember everything you've done. And so it's really important. So um, keep it up and keep building it up as you go. As you get closer to um, being ready to submit the application form, you do need to practice the viva. You need to be able to practice articulating and answering questions on the, the study guide and various scenarios. And usually, we will give you practice uh, in, this, in our training, but it's, it, that's a, one of the key roles for the sponsor. If you're lucky enough to have other people in your organization that you can uh, work with who've been through it recently, they can help you. And also what we find is a lot of the people on our study courses form little study clubs and, and do this by Skype or um, WhatsApp or whatever uh, in order to practice questioning and answering. Uh, because it is a skill. It's not something that comes naturally to most people. 
So the sponsor is key to helping you prepare. They need to decide, are you ready? Is that application form ready to go in? Are you as an individual ready to go forward for that viva? It might be better to suggest that you wait three months and get a bit more experience and confidence rather than go in and fail the first time. There is no um, restriction on the number of times you can repeat it, but often people take failure as, uh, as being a negative. Um, so the sponsor has a role there to decide, does the candidate have a realistic chance of passing? What can I do to give the candidate everything chance of passing? So the sponsor is key here, because ultimately they are the gatekeeper. They do have to sign your application form and their own sponsor form, and without that you can't actually apply. If you do apply, then, as I say, the sponsor form will go first to a couple of assessors. They will look at your uh, experience as written on that application form and decide whether on paper you meet the uh, expectations. Now, as I say, this process is only going to gain you eligibility. It is the competent authority in the UK, that's the MHRA or the VMD for veterinary medicines, that have the final decision as to whether you are suitable for it to be named on an individual manufacturing authorization license. If you get called for the interview for the VIVA, then you will have one member from each of the three professional bodies conducting the interview. They can go ahead in extreme circumstances if something happens and one of the assessors can't make it. They can actually go ahead and conduct an assessment with only two assessors and all the years I was a QP assessor, that only ever happened once. Their role is not to trip you up. They will meet ahead. They typically do three assessments in a day, starting the first one at 10 o'clock in the morning. So they'll meet about 9 o'clock and, and agree who's asking what questions. The assessment will always be chaired by the representative, by the assessor from your professional body. So again, the chair may well change during the day. If there's a chemist, two chemists and a biologist, then... Um, it will change. They want to see how, how good you are. They don't want to see how bad you are. They're not trying to put you under stress. They're trying to put you at ease, and they want to give you every chance to show who you are and, and the fact that you are capable of becoming a QP. They will ask you a whole load of questions, but don't be afraid to, if you don't understand the question to say so and ask them to repeat or rephrase the question. As I say, there will be three assessors, um, the duration of the assessment is typically 60 to 75 minutes, um, and they will use mainly scenario questions. They usually start with factual questions about pharmaceutical law, but very quickly move into scenarios, because what they're looking for is, can you apply your knowledge? And it's only by applying it to various scenarios that they will be able to see that. So you've got to start preparing for this interview, as I said. Um, as soon as the training starts. You need to understand the process, and I hope this, video, this webinar will help with that. Set up practice sessions with colleagues and other trainees. Use your in-house expert to challenge you on different areas of the study guide. Um, again, start with the end in mind. What are the assessors looking for? Their intention is to find out what the candidate knows and can they apply their knowledge. They're not trying to trick you. Um, but as I say, most of it will be scenario-type questions. At the end of the VIVA process, at the end of that 60 to 75-minute process, you will be asked to step out. The 
QP officer from the three professional bodies, from your professional body, will sit in, but they won't take no, any part. And they'll escort you out of the room at the end, and then you're left to sweat outside um, while they discuss you and determine whether you've passed or failed. If you have failed, then they will um, tell you what you th they think you need to do in order to pass. They will send that to you in writing afterwards because they're probably realising that you're, you're not on receive mode at that point. You're just down in the dumps and, and panicking because you failed. Equally, if you've passed, they will um, agree some words and make some recommendations to you. Again, you're probably not listening. You're, you're excited and, and celebrating the fact that you have passed. Some things I would advise not to do. Don't forget to plan. There is a saying, I can't remember who originated it, um, failing to plan is planning to fail. And that's very true about this whole process. Look upon it as a journey. It's probably going to take you two to three years. Um, it can always take longer. Life has a habit of intervening sometimes and will throw things at you. And so it could easily take, as I've known, I think the longest I've known one of our candidates take is 10 years, but that is exceptional. Most people, it's a, a two to four year journey, shall we say, and plan out that. You're going to need study time at home. You're going to need study time uh, at work. The more support you get from your job, the better. But again, it's going to mean a lot of extra personal commitment from you as well. Work with your sponsor. Get that sponsor working with you straight away, as early as possible. In terms of answering the questions in the Viva, don't panic. There's sometimes not always a right or wrong answer. They're just looking for your thought processes. Don't think the assessors have all the answers. There are only people like you working in the industry. They've probably got a few more years' experience, but that is the only difference between them and you. So there's nothing magic about them. Um, when you're filling in that application form, don't use what I would call weasel words. I have taken part in, I have seen, I have experienced. Tell them what you have done. If you're working in sterile products and you went to visit an oral solid dose product manufacturer, don't just say, I went and visited an oral solid dose manufacturer. Tell them what you saw. Tell them on the form what you learnt, what you learnt about the critical process parameters and the critical quality attributes of the product and how that is um, linked to the role of the QP and maybe some of the deviations that you saw and, and the common faults and problems that are encountered. Put your learning down. Uh, on that application form. That's what will stand you in good stead during the Viva. As I say, it's a journey of anywhere between two and four years typically. And when you start, don't expect the progress to look like this, a nice linear progression from where you are at the start of the process to the Viva at the end. It's a lot more wobbly. <laughs> it's a bit like this. You will have ups and downs. You will have periods where you feel, I can't do this. It's too much like hard work, work's intervening, life's intervening. But if you persevere, you will get through it, um, but it will be a bit of a roller coaster ride. It will not be a linear journey. People have asked me what's the impact of Brexit. Well, obviously we know that if the UK leaves, we will become a third country. UK QPs will no longer be able to act in the rest of the EU today. As part of the EU, if you become a QP and are named on a manufacturing authorisation in the UK, you are then automatically eligible to be named on a manufacturing authorisation anywhere else in the EU. 
Well, don't try that if you're not a pharmacist in France, but that's the theory. And so there are a lot of UK QPs working in mainland Europe, and there are a lot of European QPs currently working in the UK. Um, once the UK leaves, QP certification by a UK QP, and UK will retain the role in UK legislation, but UK QPs will not be EU QPs, and therefore that certification will not count, and you would need additional certification um, by a QP based in Europe, in the EU, in the remaining of the EU, which means, in effect, product coming from the UK into the EU will need to be QP certified twice, once in the UK before it leaves, and once in the EU when it arrives which of course means we'll need extra QPs because it is a duplication of what's currently going on and that's going to be a problem for UK and the EU. Uh, as I say, the UK will still retain the role of the QP and the application process will remain unchanged. It is merely the wider implications for being a QP that are impacted. So, how do I summarise that? Prepare, plan is essential. Prepare for a journey that will end in success, and it probably will end in success. If you don't prepare, you don't plan, you're certainly diminishing your chances of success. Document your experience as it is gained and document it on that application form. Just put it down as bullet points. If you want to start with, you can always tidy up the, the phrasing and the, but capture the experience as you go. As you, right at the start, read the guidance and use the professional bodies for advice. Join of your appropriate professional body. They will provide you with help and advice, as will any training providers like us at NSF. But start that process right at the start. Know your role and responsibilities and the QP role. The best preparation is if your sponsor is a QP and you work alongside them, you will automatically gain good insight into the QP role and how they make their decisions. You know what you do. Enjoy the operations, the opportunities, and deal with the issues. As I say, don't expect it to be a linear journey. It will be a bit of a roller coaster, but if you expect that before you start, then you're prepared for it. If you want to know more about becoming a QP and uh, you're thinking about going into studying uh, to become a QP, then you can contact my colleague Amy Harding here at NSF at that address. Um, we can help you with a gap assessment and planning of your study. We regularly do gap assessments for candidates in association with their sponsors. In terms of pharmaceutical law, one of the things I said about the role of the QP is you've got to be signed up to lifelong learning and you need to understand that the law is constantly changing so you've got to keep up to date with it. So NSF provides you with a, a free, the NSF Pharma app. It's got a What's New section which I post all the new changes um, it's got a legislation and guidance section so that you can uh, look at all the applicable legislation and guidance, although, frankly, I wouldn't recommend trying to read the Directive 2001-83 on, on your mobile phone, but it is readable on a tablet. Uh, if you, it works on uh, Apple and Google uh, phones and tablets, so again, it's a resource that uh, could prove useful for you. So, I hope you found that this has been a, a useful introduction to the UK process. As I say, if you do need to know more, you can always contact my, my colleague uh, Amy and, and she will provide you with every help and assistance. So thank you for listening. I hope it was helpful and goodbye.